Turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. See, I thought that you were assuming I was going to say, turn to Romans 6. But we have finished Romans 6, haven't we? And we are now on to Romans chapter 7. As you know, if you have been with us for these studies in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul over the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, has been teaching the Roman Christians about their past and present relationship to sin. We have seen in detail how the believer has been set free from sin's bondage in order to walk in the newness of the Christian life. Almost everything he has been communicating to them in these chapters has been about the doctrines of man and sin. For instance, he first told them in chapter 5 about how sin entered the world through the first man, Adam, and how death was that consequence of Adam's first sin. He then continues to relate how believers have been delivered from Adam's fall by our reconciliation to a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul tells us is the head of a new race of people who are in fact redeemed. We could call them the elect, as the Bible does, the bride of Christ, who obey their new leader. In chapter 5, verse 20, for example, you might look there just for a moment. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul brings in a new dimension of understanding, and that is how the law of God was introduced into the human situation. There in Romans 5.20 he says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I need to tell you that this would have been a very shocking statement for a Jewish person to have heard from Paul. The Jews of Paul's day, as well as many Orthodox Jews of our own day, would never have believed that God's law was designed to increase people's trespasses. They would rather have believed that God's law was the very entry point into a life of forgiveness with God, not exacerbating their sinfulness and rejection by God. Many of these devout Jews would have been so very much dismayed at the, at the idea that God would have a plan which would include the use of His law in this particular way. And after detailing some more implications of the nature of sin and its relationship to believers in chapter 6, Paul wants to now in chapter 7 tackle the nature of the law and its relationship to believers. Not merely unbelievers, but its relationship to believers also. You could say it somewhat loosely like the following. Chapter 5 is about our death in sin and our new life in Christ. Chapter 6 is about our death to sin and our new slavery to God. And now chapter 7 is about our death 
from the law's demands and our new spiritual marriage to Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wants to cover every single base. He desires to show us every possible relationship to the past and the present. And when we come to chapter 8, which we read this morning, he'll even show us our relationship to the Holy Spirit, both past and in the future. Paul's bound and determined to give us a panoramic view of the whole of our relationship to God, to our sin, and to our world. And when we come to rightly understand chapter 7 of Romans, we're going to be taught about both our past and present relationship to God's holy law. And we're going to discover the triumph of grace over sin and the law. That's what this chapter is about. This is the crescendoing emphasis of the entire chapter. And before we get into the complexities and intricacies of verses 7 to 25, and there is much there, there is much there for us to discover exactly who that wretched man that Paul is describing in verses 7 to 25. But before we get there, Paul sets everything he wants to say in the context of what he says here in verses 1 to 6. And I want you this morning to see three aspects of believers having been freed from the tyranny of the law of God. It be very easy to remember. First, in verse 1, the principle of being released from the law. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, the picture of our being released from the law. And then in verses 4 to 6, it's the very purposes for our being released from the law of God. The principle, the picture, and the purpose or the purposes of our being released from the law. In verses 1 to 6, we'll discover, discover tremendous truth from this passage. Let's talk first about the principle of being released from the law. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Stop there. There's a principle here, and Paul wants to state it very simply. He wants us to understand our relationship to the law of God, that is the Mosaic law, including, of course, the Ten Commandments, which is something we could never fully obey. And he begins by telling us that the law is only binding on someone for only as long as that person lives. If they're no longer living, then how could it be expected that the law is still binding? Very simple point. That's a principle that he wants to teach us here in verse 1. That is to say, how could there be a continual binding nature to the law on a dead person? That's his whole point. By, ber- by virtue of the fact that they are dead automatically means that they're released 
from any binding obligation to a law that only relates to living individuals. It's a very simple principle. Paul wants these Romans to know that this principle is very, very simple yet profound. And he starts out by saying, or do you not know, brothers? Don't you know this? Isn't this familiar to you? This is something for which they should have been very well aware. doesn't mean, by the way, as I spoke in the introduction about the Jews and their particular perspective about the law, it doesn't mean that he's exclusively speaking to Jewish Christians here. In fact, most of his readers within the body of Christ in this Roman church would have probably been Gentile believers. And even though... There probably were some God-fearing Jews within the fellowship. There also certainly would have been a majority of Gentile converts who would almost exclusively have been very well-versed with the Mosaic Law. And because of that, he gives them this query, Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. The clear implication is that everyone within the confines of the church at Rome would have been well acquainted with God's holy law. You say, what's the importance? Well, if they were acquainted with it, they would have easily understood that when someone dies, they are forever released from the obligation of following the dictates of the law as over against the obligations of obedience which a living person would have. That's the principle of being released from God's law. And in an effort to bring even more clarity and understanding to this principle, the principle of being released from God's law, he gives us in verses 2 and 3 a picture of what it looks like to be released from that law. Look at it with me, verses 2 and 3. This is, this is the very picture out of which the principle will be illustrated. Thus, he says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband... While he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. You see that word in the English Standard Version of your Bibles, the word thus? It means that Paul is going to use this illustration, and in this case a human one, in which to teach his readers. Thus, bouncing right off the principle, thus, he finds an illustration or an analogy, we might say, in the concept of the marriage relationship, the human marriage covenant. And he says, in effect, if a woman is married to a man, then she is forever bound to that man by the law of marriage. That's the God-ordained intention of every marriage. If two people who join themselves to each other in a covenant of marriage, they are to remain married as long as they both shall live. This is even what we say today as pastors when we perform a wedding ceremony, isn't it? That you will be bound to each other for as long as you both shall live. Now, having said that, guess what? Paul is not talking specifically about the principles of marriage here. That's not his point. He's simply using it as an analogy, as a human illustration. 
He's not commenting on all the details and nuances of the concepts of marriage and or divorce, by the way. This is absolutely not his purpose here to do so. But it is, nevertheless, promoting the idea that this is God's design for a marriage just or thus, likewise, as it is the design of the Mosaic law to obligate everybody to it in their covenant keeping. That's his point. He's just making a a crossover. He's making a bridge in the human illustration of marriage so that you can understand your obligation to obey the law of God. As long as you live in relation to the law of God, you're obligated to obey it. That's his point. Just like in a marriage, you say, I do. The partners are obligated to stay with each other. They are bound, he says, by the law of marriage. So too, you are bound by the covenant keeping of the law of God. You are obligated. As long as you're married to the law, in essence, you're obligated to keep the law. You're obligated to the dictates of that covenant. Both are binding as long as you both shall live. But notice the latter part of verse 2. But if her husband dies, speaking of this woman of the relationship this marriage relationship but if her husband dies she is released from the law of marriage this of course is analogous by Paul's very point here to the release of someone who dies physically and who is thereby released from their obligations to the law you're released if you're dead you can't obey the law if When you are married and your spouse dies, how can it possibly be said of you that you're still married to that partner? The fact is you're not. The law of marriage is broken and you are free of its obligation. Paul then says this in verse 3, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. You see, he's simply tying up the loop by giving the opposite position. If your husband dies, you're not lawfully obligated to him anymore. But if you choose to live with another man while your husband is still alive, you're not a free woman maritally because your real husband is still around. You're actually going to be called an adulteress, Paul says, because you're living with a man who is not really your husband. You're trying to live as though you have two husbands. One that is not your lawful husband, that is with the adulterous person that you're with now, and the other man you're living and the other man you're not living with, which is your true husband, he's not even dead. That's that's what he's talking about. That's what he's referring to. But according to the latter part of verse 3, if if you as a woman, if your husband dies, She, this woman, is free from that law. What law? The law of marriage. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. If she has no obligation to her previously covenanted law of marriage, Paul says, she is free to marry another man without the label of adulteress. Her having been bound to the dictates of her marriage are over. It's over. She's no longer obligated, but she can be free to marry another man. Now, as I said, this is not talking about divorce and remarriage in terms of principle. 
Let's not try to draw all kinds of principles from that. You could possibly, of course, draw some inferences from that, but that's not his point. So let's not press it beyond the dictates of the illustration itself, the analogy. Again, this is designed to be a picture of the believer's relationship to the law of God. But, seemingly, there's a problem here. I want you to notice it. Look back at verse 1. According to verse 1, the law of God, Paul says, is only binding upon a person as long as he himself lives. Right? But in verses 2 to 3, he uses an analogy which actually doesn't speak of the person actually herself dying, but continuing on in a living capacity. That's strange. It is her spouse that is the one who actually dies. Did you notice that? If he uses this kind of analogy about being free from something in some way, you would assume that the person he's talking about who does the dying, which in this case is the husband, is analogous to being dead to the law of God, you see. You have the idea of a dead person who is free from his relationship to the law, to the law of God in verse 1. And then you have a living person who is free from her marriage law in verse 2. The husband who is dead in verse 2 is clearly only ancillary to the whole analogy itself. Doesn't seem quite parallel, does it? And there have been, of course, no lack of people who have said, well, Paul just missed it here. He tried to give a good, solid human illustration and he failed. It's not parallel. What's he doing? Well, Paul, again, is not attempting to make a one-to-one correspondence with all the details of his analogy regarding the dissolution of a marriage. That's, that's not his point. His main point is to simply drive home the idea that death severs the obligated relationship. That's all. In verse 1... His principled point is that death severs the believer's relationship to the law of God. That's it. And his point in verses 2 and 3 is that death severs the lawfully married relationship between a woman and her husband. That's all he's intending to do with the analogy. That's all. Don't press it beyond its confines, its intentions. And I believe that Paul has stated it this way, not to speak about marriage itself and being a widow, or whether or not a person who has been widowed can ever marry again, but to use the concept of of a death in a marriage to picture a freeing of the surviving spouse from these previous marital obligations. I don't believe that Paul is even concerned with finding an analogy which attempts to fit perfectly with his stated principle in verse 1. That's not his point. In fact, every human illustration breaks down at some point to its spiritual counterpart. All human human analogies break down in their corresponding spiritual truth. I believe he's giving us a principle in verse 1, and then he's giving us a picture in verses 2 and 3 in order to teach us some profound and masterful teaching on the severing of our relationship to the law of God. That's what he's doing. Just as someone is not bound to the law if he dies, so a woman is not bound to her husband if he dies. That's the point. That's the principle, and that's the picture. 
And now we come to the purpose or the purposes for being released from the law. Look at verses 4 to 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Oh, this is, this is phenomenal. This is incredible. These purposes of God for seeing us as dead to the law's demands. I want to unpack verses 4 to 6 because this is, this is the main point of what he wants to drive home to these believers in Rome and that I want to drive home to you believers in Little Rock, Arkansas. This is what he's saying here. Notice he starts out by saying likewise. Or maybe some of your translations might say or in the same way. Likewise, brothers... All of you who are brothers, genuine brothers, you have also died. Do you see? He's going right to the purpose of the passage, and that is to speak about death. That's the point. You have died to these things. What have you died to? You have also died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, don't miss the point either. Even though he's talked about physical death in verse 1, someone's obligated to the law until he physically dies. And even though he's talking about physical death in verses 2 and 3 by way of this analogy, here he's obviously referring in verses 4 to 6 to spiritual death. He's making the metaphor change now. He's talking about spiritual death. And I want you to see in verses 4 to 6, two effects and two purposes. Two effects and two purposes of our having been released from the law. Here's the first effect of our having been released from God's law. It's contained within that statement of Paul, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. What he's referring to there is our being released from the law's condemnation. You've been released from the law's condemnation. In other words, going back to verse 1, if, if in fact you've died, not physically of course, but spiritually, if you've died spiritually to the dictates of the law, you've died to its condemnation in your life, to the effect that it once had on you, for what it once brought to you, condemnation. You've died to that now. It no longer condemns you. When Jesus Christ died for your sins, when He died in your place, His satisfaction to the demands of God's law has now allowed sinners to be released. Released. For and to the demands of divine justice to the holy standard that we could never ourselves fully obey. The law condemns. The law slays. Because we couldn't keep it. But Jesus did obey. 
He perfectly obeyed the demands of the law within his own earthly life and his death on the cross. Notice that's what Paul means by that phrase, through the body of Christ. Through the death of Christ. Not talking about the body of believers, it's talking about the death of Christ. It's using one kind of phrase to refer to another. It was the satisfaction that God the Father required in order for the Father's own wrath to be assuaged toward us. That's what he's saying by that marvelous statement. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What an incredible thing this is. Incredible. My brothers, he says, you have died to the law. By the way, You also have died, passive verb. You didn't do it on your own. God did it for you. God accomplished it for you. It is His work. He has done it. Paul says, God the Father has released you and me from the law's overwhelming, all-encompassing standard of obedience, which was designed to show us how complete and how utter our sinfulness really was. The law doesn't show us this because of its own inherently flawed character. That's not what he's saying. Paul will go on to say that the law of God is holy and righteous and good. No, it's what I do when I'm confronted with God's holy and righteous and perfect law. What does it do in me? What does it do to me? It slays me. It shows me how wicked I am. It shows me how far short I fall of the glory of God. It shows me that I need a Savior. It shows me that I can't do it on my own. It shows me that I am a sinner. It slays me. It convicts me. It challenges me. I can't obey it. I can't do it. You'll hear Paul say later in this chapter, I wouldn't even known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said do not covet. It shows me the standard. It shows me the righteousness of God. It shows me the holiness of God. And that's not a flawed thing. That's a good thing. But it's not a good thing, of course, for me, because what it does to me is it shows me that the law is so exacting, it is so perfect, it is so holy, it is so righteous, that I don't measure up. It kills me. I die. It shows me how wicked I am. That's... That's an effect, beloved. That's that's an effect of the law. And then in the latter part of verse 4, he gives the first of two purposes for being released from the law. I'm so glad that God doesn't just say, this is what the law does, and this is the problem, and this is your plight, and you have no way out. God says, do you realize through the pen of Paul, that even though that's what the law does, as righteous and as holy and as as perfect as it is, it kills you. That's true. It shows you how far short you really fall. But there's a purpose in it. There's a divine and holy purpose in what God does when He brings the law to you and shows you your bondage to it, your marriage bond to it. Oh, and boy, what a husband it is. So exacting, so perfect, so holy. How would you like to live with a husband like that? Perfect, holy, righteous. What do you think would come up in the relationship on an everyday basis? 
how far short you fall. A holy, righteous, perfect husband is going to show you how far short you fall. And that's what the law does. It binds me to it. But it's not a wonderful marriage of two holy people. It's a marriage of some one or obviously in this case a code, a law that is exacting and holy and perfect and righteous but the other spouse isn't. And that's you and me. And we are not holy. And we are not perfect. And we are not righteous. And every day you live with the law it shows you how sinful you are. But he says, notice the purpose He has released us from it. You've died from it. Notice the latter part of verse 4. So that for the purpose that you may belong to another. Oh, glory to God. That you may belong to another. God has a plan. To Him, here's the identification of who that another is. To Him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Wow! Boy, God is so good. He's so kind. He's so merciful, so benevolent, that He doesn't leave us in this sin-loving, law-breaking condition He says, my very purpose in bringing you the law, bringing you under the dictates of the law, is to show you for certain how sinful you really are. But then I'll also give you a Savior to deliver you from that bondage. In fact, I'll give you another for which you can be married. I'll give you someone that you may belong to another. I love that phrase. That you may belong to another. It's like God Himself. (coughs) It's like God Himself has brought you to the ceremony of His Son Christ and He gives you away. Gives you away to His Son Jesus Christ. And He says, as the bride, marry the bridegroom. And as the father stands there, someone says, who will give this person to be married to this man? And he says, I do. I do. When God the Father says, I do, that's an I do. That's reality. That's the very purpose for our having been released from the demands of God's law so that God the Father Himself can perform a wedding ceremony so that we may be joined forever in a union with Jesus Christ. That's why He says in chapter 8, we're joint heirs with Christ. Joined in an indivisible union. Released from the law. Joined to Christ. That sounds like a great title for a sermon. Released from the law, joined to Christ. An incredibly profound reality. And Paul says it is the very purpose for our being released from the law and joined in spiritual matrimony to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself so that we may, he says, bear fruit for God. What a grand purpose. Did you know that that's the very purpose of your spiritual matrimony to Jesus Christ? so that you may bear fruit for God. Let me ask you, does this put a premium upon your desire to do good works for God? 
It's what you've been saved to do. It's what you've been joined to Christ to do. It's what you've been married to the bridegroom to do, to bear fruit for God, the fruit of a righteous life as a response to being joined to our groom, Jesus. He's the bridegroom. We as the body of Christ are a bride, the bride of Christ. And shouldn't you render to God the Father out of the depths of your own gratitude and love a host of good deeds? Isn't that what we should offer for what has occurred? I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't take the initiative to do this. I died to the law by the graciousness of the Father. And He didn't just tell me on the negative side that I died to the law. He gave me something positive. He gave me Christ. To walk with Christ. To love Christ. To be gracious to others on behalf of Christ. The very purpose, he says, of being joined to Christ in the first place. And I guess we should stop here and ask the question, if you're not bearing fruit for God, are you joined to Christ? Do you know Christ? If you're joined to Christ, you'll be bearing fruit for God. That's the very purpose of what he says here in Romans 7. It's the very purpose of God that you be joined to Christ so that you could bear fruit from God, for God. Check out your life. Check it out. Do you actually bear spiritual fruit for God? If you belong to another, if you're married to another, release from your obligations from the law and join in spiritual marriage to Christ. Are you bearing fruit? If you belong to another, you're not your own, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price, you'll produce fruit for God. That'll be the very evidence of your marriage. It will manifest itself in and through your life very appropriately and naturally because of your love for your bridegroom. I can see this in my love for my wife and her love for me. Beth is constantly endeavoring to manifest her love to me by and through her good works. Because we're joined together in holy matrimony. She desires to give me service and obedience and love and tenderness. And it is all because of God's original design. His enduring design between a wife and her husband. And this is what Paul is saying here. You have a wife. She was released from the binding elements of the law. And she's now joined to another. And as she's joined to the person of Jesus Christ in a spiritually dynamic relationship, she wants with gratitude and love and tenderness and service to serve that wonderful bridegroom. To serve forever. And as I said, it not only fits... Paul's purpose in negatively describing how the death of one spouse severs that marriage obligation, but he also uses it positively to describe how we are then joined to another. A remarriage, if you will, to the one who is our true bridegroom and for which by virtue of what our spiritual husband has done for us in releasing us from the demands of the law, we may serve our spiritual husband Jesus with gratitude fruit. That's right. Gratitude fruit. You just want to say, I, I just, I'm just here to serve you, Lord. I just want to bear fruit for you. You're my spiritual husband. You're my leader. You're my master. You're my Lord. I just want to do what you tell me to do. That's why Jesus in the Gospels, when they weren't doing what He asked them to do, what He commanded them to do, said very clearly to them, 
If you call me Lord, Lord, then why aren't you doing what I say? Speaks of maybe a false professor. Someone who's not bearing fruit for God. Someone who's not doing what the Lord says. I guess we could say it this way. Our first husband, the law, even though holy and righteous and good, was constantly being used to reveal our own utter sinfulness. And through that marriage, which became in our realization more like a bondage than a marriage, we needed a substitute who could live up to the demands of the obligation that we simply could not, and that's Christ. That person was Jesus, who perfectly lived up to every single obligation of those vows of obedience which were placed upon me and my marriage to the law. It it wasn't just a binding obligation on him. He was perfect. That, That was the perfect relationship. Do you see? That's two perfect entities. Christ and the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. There was no reason for him to die. There was no reason for him to atone for his own sins because he had no sin. There was a perfect marriage there. But he went on that cross and he died in my place and your place because of the very fact that we aren't perfect, that we are sinful, that we needed someone on our behalf, in our stead. We desperately needed that. See, I wasn't simply neutral to the law. It wasn't just that I couldn't live up to the obligations. I transgressed the law of God. There were trespasses. It had its demands on me and it therefore condemned me. But Jesus took all of that and by dying on the cross, He released me from the law's obligations, from the law's condemnation upon me. And He went further He initiated a union with me in which I was brought into a spiritual marriage so that I could belong to another. Paul says, and for which I now in gratitude and love, I want to bear fruit for God. I want to show him, even though every fruit that I bear for God is going to be tainted with my sin until this world is done, I still want to show God how thankful I am. How much gratitude there is in my heart for drawing me to Jesus Christ. And you say, boy, that's the end of a great message. No, there's more. Paul isn't finished. Notice another effect from our being released from the law. According to verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Oh, while we were living in our unregenerate condition, our our old Adam lifestyle, our old man... He says our sinful passions, our lusts, our drives, our ungodly motivations were aroused by the law. The law was doing its continual work. It was needing us, prodding us, poking us, showing us how sinful we were. As it were, bubbling up to the surface, our sinful passions. That's what the law does. It it surfaces all that is the worst 
in us. And yet Paul says, it was at work in your members to bear fruit for death. Death. I was accumulating fruit for death, not bearing fruit for God. I was bearing fruit for death. What a hopeless condition. And this is precisely why we must reach out to those who are perishing so that we may warn them of their spiritual inactivity and their sinful passions which are only bearing fruit for death. That's why we reach out with the gospel. That's why we have missionary endeavor. Because we're trying to show these lost persons, these lost souls, that what they think is well within them is not well within their souls because they're actually bearing fruit for death. Not bearing fruit for God. But now, but now, Paul says in the latter part of verse 6, but now, that's another one of those Pauline but nows. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. That's that effect. The effect of our being released from the law, that second effect that he gives us here, is that we've died to that which held us captive. It caused us, it motivated us to live with sinful passions, And it held us bound like a prisoner in our own bodies. But he says you've died to that. God has given you blessed relief. Blessed release. You no longer have to follow your sinful passions in an obligatory way. You're released, no longer captive. What an effect of Christ's work on the cross. What a liberating Savior. Oh, if you're living in your sin today, you have no capacity to get out of it. You don't. Try as you might. Live as you will. Pray as you can. Can't do it. It's holding you captive. And the God of this world, Satan himself, holds people captive to do his will. Paul says to Timothy, you you don't have the, the capacity to respond. And yet, because Paul is talking to Christians here, and I'm talking to you as Christians there, he says he's liberated us for another purpose. Look, the last phrase of verse 6, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Oh, fantastic. No longer are we in bondage to our sinful passions, always being reminded of that bondage because of the laws arousing us to it. He gives us another purpose. So that for the purpose and the plan of God to release us from the captivity of sin by the demands and condemnation of the law, So that we serve not with the old written code. That's just another way to talk about the law of God. Not with that old code. Not with that old written document. But to serve in the new life of the Spirit. We no longer see the latter 
excuse me, the letter of the law as something which arouses my pride and my passions, but I can now, believe it or not, rejoice, delight in the law of God. I don't see it as something that's poking me and prodding me and goading me into unearthing, surfacing all the worst in me. I actually embrace the law of God because the Spirit of God is resident with the body of Christ to show us how by His empowerment we can actually fulfill the law of God. What a, what a purpose. What a phenomenal purpose. We've been transferred from a realm of service under the demands and condemnations of the law to a new realm, the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, where we serve under His divine purposes and power. Is that the way you live? Is that who you are? Are you still under its bondage, that old written code? Oh, I have a message for you today. You can live a new life in the Spirit. You can live in the realm of the Holy Spirit. You can follow His will. You can read His Word. You can obey His law. And you won't do it perfectly, but you'll be further conformed every step of the way to the conformity that is Jesus Christ, God's Son, by the Spirit's power. It is available to you. Do you want it? Let's bow together in prayer. Do you want it? Do you want that power from God? The power from the Holy Spirit to say no to your sin? You you can't say no to it otherwise. Oh, you may be involved in some level of moral reformation, but you need the Holy Spirit to be involved in any kind of spiritual transformation. Oh, Father, I pray that there is no one here who walks out of this place who is continually, by the very rejection of this message, joined not to Christ, but to the bondage of the law. Father, I ask that by your own gracious initiative, you would release them from that bondage. Allow them to die through what Christ did on that cross. Allow them to be severed from their obligation to the law. Lord, don't let anyone think that they could one day stand before you believing that in their own flesh, in their own power, by their own enablement, they could say, I have obeyed the law of God. Deliver them from such foolishness, from the shock of waking into the reality, not of divine grace, but of divine judgment. Be merciful to them, Lord. Show them their need. Slay their consciences. Bring them to their knees spiritually. And give them release from the obligation to the law. And join them to Christ.
marry them to Christ. Make them belong to another. Father, say, I will. Say, I do. To bringing them by your grace to marry up with your son. And Lord, for those who are here today who have already seen that marriage occur, that spiritual union with Christ, challenge those believers, those genuine followers to bear fruit for you. Challenge them to love you and in gratitude serve you, not in the old written code, but in the newness of life in the Spirit. Lord, energize us for that kind of service. Make us different than when we came. Allow us to bear fruit for You and to serve in the newness of the life of Your Spirit. And we'll thank You in Christ's name. Amen.